Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Amjad Farid Al-Taib, who is joining us from inside the war now raging in Khartoum. Amjad served as Assistant Chief of Staff to former Sudanese Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok and as an advisor to the UN political mission in Sudan, known as UNITAMS. He is a longtime political activist in Khartoum and held leadership roles inside the original Forces for Freedom and Change coalition that negotiated power sharing with Sudan's military in 2019. Amjad is among the many Sudanese who grew disillusioned with a mediation process in Sudan that they now say led to the civil war destroying their capital. We are grateful he found the time to talk with us after we had to abandon our first try at recording this when he, like many of Khartoum's residents, had to move locations to safer ground. Amjad, thanks again for speaking with us. Thank you, Alan, and thank you for taking the interest on what's happening in Sudan in these difficult times. So you're talking to us from inside Khartoum right now. I imagine that past week, week and a half has been among the more eventful in your lifetime, uh, to say the least. Can you just walk us through the last 10 days or so since the fighting has broken out? Yeah, I think it has been the most eventful for Sudan since the Mahdi take Khartoum. Khartoum did not witness active fighting since ever. Of course, civil war and all of miseries happened in Darfur, in South Kordofan, in Blue Nile, in South Sudan. But Artumian to witness active fighting in their streets and in their neighborhoods. Houses were stormed by RSF looking for supplies and, and shooting happening in the streets. As well, electricity and water were cut. And it's uh, the situation turned completely uh, crazy. Moreover, the fight started during the months of Ramadan, where people are usually fasting, so supplies run short from the houses very quickly. In my house, personally for me, my kids brought some empty bullets that were thrown in the house. So we decided to move from the house, and we managed to go to South Khartoum. And then the area in South Khartoum were attacked again, both by RSF and also there was some bombardment from the army in a Karakla area and it became unsafe. So I moved again. It's it's a war situation. It's um, and it cannot be described by anything other than the saddest days in the history of Sudan. And h- how did you escape from this war zone in the downtown to to where you are now? And in, in the, the first escape from Amarat was Yani. I, I just drove the car to my in-laws' house in South Khartoum, and we had to take like the inside neighborhood houses roads and avoid the main the main roads. And of course, we were talking on the phone with people in different areas trying to find safe passages. And here I have to salute actually the resistance committees who actually managed very quickly to turn themselves into local humanitarian groups, which was very effective in evacuating people, in even now they are delivering humanitarian aid to people stranded in their houses. So the resistance committees played a major role in trying to give people some instructions about the safe passages. It's not completely effective, especially with the lack of network and internet connection in many areas. But 
more or less it's better than than nothing and actually it was effective enough in evacuating many people from the war zones including diplomats and foreigners who were living around Khartoum too and Amarat and Khartoum one uh, safety so i think the resistance committee can be called the hero of the moment so a lot of Khartoum residents have been evacuating over the past few days you obviously are still talking to us from Khartoum. Um, wh- why haven't you evacuated yet? And, and do you have any plans to do so? My family have been evacuated to cross the borders to Egypt. We still don't know where this is going. And I just, I think everybody is in danger. But yani, I think it's a personal yani, responsibility to stay as long as I can, trying to help figuring this out by stopping the fighting before it leaves. I'm not saying that I'm definitely going to stay, but I will try to stay as long as I can. However, your question is directed to people who are privileged enough to have the ability to leave. It's more risky for the lower classes. I think the question should be what can we do for them, rather on what the people who are lifted enough to have the choice to leave can can do. Thanks, Amjad. Um, can you walk us back to right before the, the fighting started? Um, there were obviously escalating tensions between these two camps, these two men, and a lot of last-minute mediation attempts. But were you surprised when, when this broke out? I think it was inevitable to, to come. The political process and the mediation efforts that was happening were not well designed. Unfortunately, the international community who fostered this process since the beginning was part of the causation of this by the faulty design of the process that was actor-based, not issue-based. Its focus was who sits on the table, not which or what questions it addresses and what problems it is trying to, to solve. I'm not saying that the Sudanese parties do not have their share of the blame. We had our shortcoming, all of us as Sudanese, and we had our mistakes, but international community need to look back, the U.S. needs to look back, the U.N. needs to look back and reevaluate their engagement strategy and actually try to see what's the outcome of their intervention because the outcome, they, maybe they had good intentions, but basically this was policy failure based on weak analysis, based on wrong intervention that yield civil war at the end. So, of course, an, an actors-based mediation is, is not entirely unique in, in situations like this. And it's, it's often how, how mediation is structured. Um, so can you expand a bit, you know, for our audience on, on what you mean? What would have been an alternative to talking directly to those in power? Because ultimately, people will say, you know, you have to convince those who actually hold power to eventually step down, um, if that was the goal. So what is the alternative you're proposing? But but that was not the goal. The problem is that it became an actor-based process, not between those who are in power and those who are not in power. It would have been sensible or at least logical to do it that way. The problem is the international community start listening to only one party which is FFC Central Council, assuming that they are the only representative of the Sudanese people. And the FFC start forging their alliances 
based on that, but it also distanced them from the streets. And for the democratic forces, the FFC one agreed before agreeing on the agenda or on the process structure or anything, they agreed with Burhan and Himeti on who is the participant list, who will they allow to participate in the political process. And Sudan has an issue of representation. There is a problem of representation in this country. We did not have election, fair and free election in this country since 1986. So it's better to have an inclusive, long, big process than have an exclusive process that focuses on giving the power to certain political actors. Because this will end by fight between these actors. And when you have more than military actor in the process, they fight with guns. And this is exactly what happened. And this is not something that we say in retrospect. Many criticism have been focused to this process, have been directed to this process, especially to try to reverse engineer a pre-made but actually, the international community was pushing for a deal, any deal, to form a government, any government, without looking at the capacity, the realistic capacity of such a government to address the problems of Sudan. And it ended in the war. Okay, I, I, I want to get back to a lot of that, especially those late stages of the mediation process before this, this war broke out. I want to take a a few steps back, though, into where all of this began. Can you explain the rise of the Rapid Support Forces and Hemeti? Where did he come from and and how did he get so much power? The RSF is a renovated Janjaweed militia. If you remember, on the beginning of the Darfur War, the Janjaweed were the Arab tribes, fighters who were recruited by Bashir to fight against the rebellion in Darfur. They committed, of course, a lot of atrocities. But in 2008 and 2009, especially after the ICC indictment of al-Bashir, they started dismantling the Janjaweed militia, but they still needed them. So in 2013, they leaned into MAT in order to recruit fighters to support the fighting the insurgency in South Kurdufan and Darfur. And he managed, he managed to give al-Bashir many, uh, many big wins in Gosgongu, in Gosdangu, and in Dileg and in other areas in, in, in Darfur. He managed to win many battles against Jim, against Islam A, and even against SPLM North. And, and actually... It's remarkable that the fairest appearance of the RSF when Mohammed Osman al Hussein in 2013 used the RSF, the Rapid Support Force, against the revolution or the, against the uprising and to calm down the demonstration that took place in September 2013. And they managed very effectively to end any, any peaceful demonstration in less than one week killing hundreds of of Sudanese, shooting them in the streets. They were ruthless and they were very effective for al-Bashir to use them. He started calling them not Himeti forces. He was saying they are not Himeti forces. They are IT forces, which translate by protection forces. So many to build 
a lot of influence over Bashir since then, in into the extent that people, prominent politicians like the late Prime Minister Sadiq al-Mahdi, who criticized publicly the formation of the rapid support force as a parallel force, he, he got arrested and detained by, by the government for a very long time. So basically, they became the silver bullet of Bashir regime and for the National Congress Party to fight any insurgency and also to fight any peaceful demonstration. In 2015 and 2016, and with the rise of Khartoum, process, which was the EU plan to fight what's called the illegal migration from the Horn of Africa, RSF became even more important because the government of Bashir depended on it or delegated to it the duty to protect the borders. And then they start maybe receiving or dealing with the EU. The EU, of course, deny supporting, providing any support to the RSF, but the RSF continue claiming that it's protecting Europe from the migrants, and this appealed to many. Later, with the war in Yemen, the regime again used the RSF to send fighters to help the Saudis and the Emiratis in their war in Yemen, and this helped developing the regional links and also uh, the diplomatic outside image of, of the RSF, and it also helped him at increasing his, his influence more and more. During all that, Himeti was continuing to recruit, to receive weapons, to receive equipment, and his forces increased dramatically over the course of time from 7,000 fighters into over 100,000 fighters. Nobody knows exactly how much it is. Also, a parallel to all that, Himeti is a background is being a businessman. So he was focusing on his businesses. He took Jabal Amir, which is an area rich of gold in, in West Sudan, and start engaging in mining activities. Later in 2017, he developed here, he started developing his links with the Wagner Group, not only in, in, in the economic activities, but he engaged with them all around Sahel. Recently, he closed the borders with with CAR, with Central Africa, to protect and safeguard the Russian regime there from the coups that was starting in Sudan, or that was what they claimed. Many shortcomings from the civilian side happened in order in, in accepting him being a part of, of the transitional government structure. I just want to add one thing, yeah, yeah, Alan, that the Himeti's war with the state apparatus was inevitable. The RSF is an abnormal appendix to the state normal organization structure. It's a parallel private militia, parallel private army owned by one man, his leader of it, his brother is his deputy, his other brother is his chief of his staff, and that's it. And the coup in 2021 exaggerated plus for power and pushed him to competition with the army, which its seat was always there. So we'll get to the coup and the events after that here in a bit. But but just first of all, quickly, how, how did the army itself grow so weak that it could be rivaled by this paramilitary force? It is the nature of what happened during Bashir era. 
during Bashir era, the country was under military rule. There was no oversight over the military from any civilians. And let's not forget that the, the staff, the Sudanese army itself, is a dysfunctional, very politicized institute establishment, the military establishment during 30 years of Bashir regime, and of course politicizing the army and using it for political purpose weakened weakened its its ability to fight. But still, it has yani, some historical and structural advantage over 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 the RSF being a hundred year old uh, army. Okay, we're getting closer now to current events. So in 2019, of course, these two military institutions um, under Al-Burhan and Hameti, they seized power after the the revolution uh, toppled Bashir. And then you were part of the prime minister's office uh, during this civilian-led government under Prime Minister Hamdok before the coup in 2021. At that time, was it apparent that Burhan and Hameti could not work together? Or did it seem like oftentimes they were uh, keeping the rivalry in check, essentially, so they could you know, collude in keeping power? They start fighting since day one. The competition between SAF and the RSF over economic interest, over attempting to control the state, attempting to influence the executive branch, never stopped. And... Also, their, uh, both their, uh, their attempt, both sides, to destabilize the civilian government never stopped. It continued to weaken the government in, in attempt to, to show that the civilian fails and to promote the military rule of the country. However, the only time Himeti and Burhan agreed together and settled their rivalries was resulted on the October 2021 coup that they did not agree on anything about it other than removing the civilians from power. The two parties were, this is where only things that they agreed upon. I think the war between them was inevitable. And and when the prime minister was dealing with his military counterparts, um, was he able to deal with them as a unit, or was it one of these cases that he'd have to essentially deal with one of them and then deal with the other separately? I think most of his time, of course, you need to ask him this question, but I think he spent most of his time and thinking in in trying to mediate between the two generals and between the two institutions, between SAF and the RSF. The problem of the the transitional government was the multiplicity of the decision-making centers. You have SAF, you have RSF, and you have the executive branch headed by the prime minister. And in addition, you have the political class, the different political parties, which made yani, changeable, interchangeable alliances to serve its political and partisan interests between the different actors. Okay, now, so after the October 2021 coup, when these two stepped in and dissolved the civilian government, arrested Prime Minister Hamdok, you were then part of a political process started by the UN at first uh, to try to move forward from the coup and and restore civilian uh, rule. Can you talk about how that political process got started um, and what its original objective was? After the coup and in January, after the resignation of Prime Minister Hamdouk, it became inevitable for the UN special political mission in Sudan to start doing its mandate on supporting the the transitional path in Sudan. Volker Pertz, the SRSG to Sudan, announced 
their effort into the political process in January 2022, it had a very good start with a consultation process that included many, many actors, especially grassroots actors. However, the UN special political mission was under enormous pressure from the African Union and from EGAD and did not receive to be involved on the process. And the Unitams here did not, I, I think, it did not receive enough political support from the Secretary General to the UN to say, look, this is our mission and it was, it is here by the request of the Sudanese legitimate government and this is its role. So basically, the process turned from being fostered by the UN to being fostered by a trilateral mechanism composed of the African Union and IGAD and the UN. So the process became disturbed by this, and its objective came gradually from serving the objective of restoring the transitional path into becoming serving partisan and, and, and power-related objectives. However, after June 2022, when the trilateral mechanism tried to have its fairest public meeting with all the actors, which collapsed because it in- included many of the Islamists, pushed the, the pro-democracy actors to, to boycott the, the process and the meeting, then the U.S. interfered and took informally took the lead after Molifi visited the country, took the side of listening only to one actor and trying only to deal with FFC1 and, and, and the military. And they, they were very smooth with, with the military. They presented all the carrots with no sticks, which actually made the generals more lost to, with their loss to power and made them, made, made, they dealt with them as natural political actors who have the right to their demands. So uh, American diplomats, when you when you talk to them, will say that they stepped in in June last year, essentially, after this UN-AU-EGAD trilateral process uh, collapsed, as, as you described. And then they stepped in to take over political negotiations, although informally, as you say. What's your criticism of that defense that they essentially had to step in? They continued to push for any solution and formation a government without thinking about the capacity of this government to address the issue. So there was no talking, there was no real talk or mediation on the issues. It was about distribution on who sit on the table and like reaching any agreements and 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 and, and then try to 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 uh, to reverse engineer it or and 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 just push it on 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 the people, and there there was all this disregard to any criticism that tried to bring discussions to issue based discussions. And for example, they pushed for a quick, short transitional period of two years to reach an elections, while they accepted ten years for security sector reform. How can you fix the civil service and prepare for election and prepare and fix the economy and social services and all the things that you need in the transition in order to give some stability to the democratic transformation in two years? And then you still have two separate armies that are not integrated yet. And they 
I think the cost of failure increased every time with 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 every failure. So the failure of of the UN to push back at the AU uh, not well intended participation in the process led to the June failure that led to the Quad failure that ended with this process that resulted in civil war. And so with every, and, and with every failure that you were pushing the grassroots and the public and the resistance committee uh, further further away, there was no principle. There was no principled stand towards the issues and towards the structure and towards the democratic uh, uh, process. Now, th- th- this Quad process, uh, the Quad being the U.S., U.K., Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates did produce this December agreement, which promised the restoration of civilian rule after some further negotiations, um, including over security sector reform, which was supposed to lead to this government in April this month. That was that was the latest deadline that had been set. Can you explain exactly how the December framework agreement ended up uh, further spiking tensions between Burhan and Hemeti uh, specifically and moving uh, Hemeti in many ways into something of an informal alliance at times, it seemed, with the uh, civilians in the, in the FFC. Hemeti wanted two things. He wanted to maintain his independence and he wanted to whitewash his name. He wanted to uh, maintain his independence to continue using his influence in controlling the country. And he wanted to whitewash his name and being accepted by the West, who is very afraid, not only from the past, crimes from prosecution for the past crimes that he committed in Darfur, but also from the the despairs of the sitting, the coup itself, all of that. So since the West was supporting this political process, Hemeti was ready to do whatsoever to 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 present himself as the champion of this political agreement. And it's 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 very it's astonishing that many political leaders of the FFC are are falling for this. He has, of course, some influence over some of them, direct influence, whom just looking for power, but I think they don't have a real alliance. It's a marriage of convenience by the FFC that's trying to go back to the power and by RSF that he understands that he is the weaker part on the power equation after the coup. So they both had common enmities rather than common common interest. So, so in that December agreement, they, they punted these five issues for further discussions, one of which were these security questions. How did this security question uh, get so deadlocked at the very end? The problem that these workshops were actually, as I said, window dressing for uh, for previous agreement agreement. The main issues were were taken uh, very quickly, and uh, like, and 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 the workshop was just a formality. Yani, the last workshop was about security sector reform. It started on the 16th of March, uh, but on the 15th of March, they all signed uh, uh, RSF and, uh, and and SAF and the FFC. They signed the, uh, the outcome of it. And now they are talking about it as that we signed on the 15th on the security sector reform uh, outcomes. The workshop starts on the 16th. This tells you a lot about the, uh, the workshops. 
So the political dispute uh, turned between them about prolonging the the integration party, the integration period for the RSF, while the uh, while SAF was looking for shorter one. Uh, they 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 uh, actually summarized the whole security sector reform uh, approach in only integration of the RSF uh, to the army. Obviously, the army was trying to get rid. Of its the of the parallel army as quickly as possible, while Himeti was trying to maintain uh, his uh, his military influence as long as he can, at least up until uh, uh, the election, so he can uh, regate or influence it somehow with with his independent uh, forces. So I think this is a, a really key part of the narrative and one that. And one that we've heard on this road towards war eventually in the end, the, the breaking down of, of talks more or less on these security questions. How is it that you say these two signed a document in, in mid-March on the terms of security sector reform and integration, and yet they ended up at odds over this same issue in April and escalating tensions and eventually civil war. Can you explain that? The RSF is a militia owned by one man. He can make whatsoever decision. But Burhan may be the commander-in-chief of the army, but for a 100 years old army, he still have an institution. And the problem of this institution, that in 30 years of Islamic control, the Islamists continue to have some influence over it, a lot of influence, maybe, but it's still as an institution, it has a collective decision. So basically, there are many army officers there who are frustrated about this situation. Okay, so so, so this is an important point. You're saying that Burhan agreed to the terms uh, but essentially other generals rejected it. That's the FFC claim. I'm not mm. sure of it. That's, that's, that's what's presented. And they say that the international community was present and witnessing on it. So just to be clear, you're not sure whether or not Burhan actually signed that document. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I know that uh, they published it and they said that they were agreed upon and they agreed upon it before the before, before workshop presented. And they have no reason mm. to lie. They don't have mm. a reason to lie. And but basically, as I said, Burhan may be the commander-in-chief when there is a war, but as an army, as an institution, has a leadership. And we know for some time that there is a lot of frustration of the abnormal situation of the RSF, whether from the technical army officers or the politicized army officers, and even the mm. citizens. So can, can I just ask you, um, of course, an alternative to pressing the parties towards these deadlines of forming a civilian government and sort of pushing them to, to come to an agreement, which is the approach that you're criticizing, the alternative to that would seem to be a much longer process. And who knows when or if at the end of that process, the military would actually hand over power to a civilian rule. So do you think actually that was a viable alternative? I think, yes, I think it's it, 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 longer process, having a longer process that actually discussing issues is better than having very long process that only discussed actors and done in the dark, conducted in the dark and led to civil war. So basically, it was more, it would have been more principled for the international community to focus on the issues rather than focusing on the actors and having as long as 
possible process that has the possibility to yield a solution. Even if it could have succeeded in making a government, the government would have not been able to address the issues of the country with all the weakness that we described earlier, and it would have ended in either a coup or or another civil war. So now we're we're obviously facing, you know, what what was the worst case scenario uh, in many regards. Um, what what hopes do you have uh, for these pushes for a ceasefire? The humanitarian, as uh, extension of the humanitarian ceasefire, which I'm hearing bomb like I'm talking bombing and gunshots while I'm talking to you. So obviously it's not uh, it's not effective on anything, but. I think developing this situation of hostilities into a technical ceasefire that does not necessitate necessitate a political understanding or agreement, but to stop the fighting and withdraw the RSF into uh, lines outside the residential areas and to monitor these lines before starting any political process is essential. And and mm. this should be done under the direct threat of prosecution for those who violate this ceasefire. And also mm. having clear maps for safe zones and soft corridors for humanitarian aid and for the civilian mm. is essential. And any mm. political process that's to start is supposed to start on the basis of the principle approach to build democracy. We cannot go to democracy while we have two armies in the state. Mm. We need mm. to focus mm. on unifying not only the the military establishment, but unifying the whole decision-making process in the country under civilian oversight. So I, I think most people, most observers, you know, obviously agree it would be better if the RSF integrated quickly into the army and and if you uh, move past this this two army problem, the problem, of course, is that no one really knows how you would force Hemeti in the RSF to do that. And they've also proven, or they're proving right now, that they're willing to fight a a war over this issue. So so how do you propose getting around that? As I said, the man has a lot to answer for, from international persecution, from sanctions. The man is a multimillionaire businessman who has his businesses in Turkey, in Ethiopia, in in Emirates, and his relations with Russia and all of that. And I think he's doing all that. He's looking for his military influence to protect his political influence that he uses in his economic dealings. So I think the economic threat to Hemeti would be effective. And also the man is very eager to the international recognition. So basically there is a lot of, of that. And he already accepted the integration, as he said, in 10 years. So basically what we need to come is the practical steps toward this. And again, let me correct you, I'm not talking about integration. RSF needs to be dissolved, needs to be these unexisting. They, we need to nullify the existence of the RSF. We need to dismantle it, and this needs to happen on steps over time. Fine, but this would be the time for the transition. Mm-hmm. And of course, there is other parallel process that needs to happen on the transition that also needs time. And again, this should not happen without a similar uh, process of reform that happened 
on 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 the military establishment, on the formal military establishment, on the army that include uh, looking again its at its structure, its number, its leadership, its trying to depoliticize it, trying to uh, sort out the problem or get rid of those who are politicized in the army, and both of these cannot happen under the current leadership of SAF and the army. Most generals need to go, and I think the international community have the cards and the regional forces that align itself with both actors have the influence over the, over the two of them in order to make this happen. However, the problem mm-hmm. that the international community is still lacking the clear side to this. They are still dealing with it about trying to convince them to it, not try to force them to it and use the actual big guns. So, so, so I hear your argument. Um, I want to, I want to pose another one um, to you. Um, wh- what if outside powers cannot agree to force these two from power, even if they did have the non-military tools to do so, which, uh, w- which I think is also questionable. But of course, there, there is no international community. In a proper sense, there's a variety of these external actors, some of whom back different sides, some of whom are for democracy, some of whom are not. It's obviously a much different world than it was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, where I think we could say international community in a more straightforward manner. So just as a hypothetical, what if no one really can force these two to step aside and you have to deal with them as political actors? Um, what, What would be the way forward then? It will, it will turn to another Syria, but unfortunately, it would be worse than Syria, and everyone will will pay for it, from Saudi Arabia to 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 Ethiopia to Egypt to Emirates and to the West, who is going to lose more control over Sahel. Even Russia is going to be affected if the war continues to Sudan, because it will lead to a larger regional war. I don't think Mm. that the international community is well aware of that and does not see how this is going to affect the thing. So so Amjad, you know, uh, once again, thank you very much for your time. I just have a a final question. But before you joined uh, the government... Um, and took on a bit more of a political role. You were an activist for many years. I'm wondering what gives you hope right now. Obviously, it looks to many like the Sudanese revolution is essentially dead. I've seen more or less the obituary for it written in a few recent uh, articles. So, so what gives you hope, if anything? Saying that the revolution is dead, you're making the same mistake that the FFC saying that the political process is final. The revolution is never dead and the dynamics is never ending. The Sudanese people have been struggling for 30 years against Bashir regime and they toppled it at the end. So basically, it's and, and we have no other options and to fight for stability in, in, in Sudan and pay the, pay the blame, pay the share of our shortcoming and our mistake and our lack of responsibility in saving this and saving the Sudanese people. Right. I'm, 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 I'm not working out of hope. I'm working out of duty and responsibility towards this country. And we will continue uh, trying to do this until we die, because we have no other option. We have no other countries. We are here to survive. Thank you, Amjad, for for coming on during this um, very challenging time uh, for you and everyone around you. Um, And please stay safe. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.